Hello, humans. I've thought a lot about this moment, specifically about when I'm in front of the microphone, alone, talking to you. What could I possibly say after all this time away? And I've sat in front of the microphone several times. I guess there were dry runs. The weight of the moment was just crushing. Some people I asked for advice said, just skip it. Get over yourself. You can talk about it as you go. Just keep the show going. And that wasn't bad advice. But on the other hand... I've been through a dark night of the soul. I've gone to the underworld and clawed my way out. I utterly dissolved and disintegrated. I was dismantled physically, mentally, spiritually. And here I am, triumphant, reformed, reintegrated, ready to enter the arena. And I'm also, in my own eyes, almost something entirely different than I was before. And there's a heroic tale in there. It's extraordinary. In a lot of ways, to me at least. It took doctors and psychiatrists and therapists and mentors, lovers, friends, moon magic, patience, love, and hard work. It took everything I had to get here. And this right now is me honoring that hard work. But what this isn't is an opportunity to tell you how special I am, how extraordinary I am, how what I went through is different. And this is where I got hung up before. Sickness, grief, heartache, tragedy, agony, times of struggle, even the big ones are ordinary. It's part of the human experience every day for countless people, maybe even you, right now. So as much as I'd love to be the hero of the story, I'm not. I'm perfectly fine just being the hero in my own story. But what this is, is if you find yourself struggling, maybe like I was, or maybe in your own way, if you're in a dark period, if you're right now going through it, I get it. And my heart is out to you. I owe a huge debt of gratitude to all the people who have lent their help and love and energy and finances to get me here. To the patrons specifically, you helped me afford the therapy and the time I needed to, to get back here. So thank you. Today's the first episode I've recorded since all of this, which is from before COVID. That's, that's how long I've been going through this. And because of the pandemic, it's also the first episode we recorded remotely, which has its own challenges. I feel awkward and rusty and sad it couldn't be in person, but I am still so grateful to our guest today, Marianne Williamson, for lending us her time. Marianne Williamson is more than just a spiritual author and teacher and political activist in our family. My mom found her book, A Return to Love, in 1992 when I was three years old, and it had a huge impact on her. That's why I picked that book to read first when I was getting to know her now as an adult. I mean, my mom would talk about her when I was younger, but this was my first real deep dive into Marianne, and I chose that book that my mom found all those years ago. When my girlfriend and I were listening to prepare for this interview, we found ourselves laughing, nodding, and shaking our heads, flicking each other, saying, babe, that's so you. That's how you can tell you're really reading something that's spot on and brilliant and accessible and immediately applicable is when you're flicking your partner saying, oh my God, that's so you. If you need a nudge or reminder to get plugged back in, I highly recommend picking up a copy. But today is about my conversation with Marianne Williamson and her being my welcome back to the public world. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Marianne Williamson. I hope you enjoy. Marianne, it's an honor to have you and I really appreciate you making the time for us. This is our first digital interview ever. So oh, wow. <laughs> I like to start off with a question. It can be as big or small of an answer as you'd like, but I just like to start by saying, who are you? Well, obviously we are multidimensional beings on this earth. I am a woman. I am from Houston, Texas. I'm a mother. I'm an American. I'm a Jew. I'm an author. I'm a political activist. All those things that define 
one's mortal existence. But I am also aware, and deeply so, that our mortal existence is just a suit of clothes, and that who we all are, when you say, who are you, is something that is not contained in the physical body, and through which all of us are one. The line, there is only one begotten son, that many traditional Christians interpret as meaning Jesus is the only begotten son. As a student of A Course in Miracles and a broader universal metaphysics, I see there is only one begotten son to mean that there's only one of us here. The Course in Miracles says you are like sunbeams to the sun, thinking you're separate from other sunbeams. You are like waves in the ocean, thinking you are separate from other waves. There's really just one big ocean and one big sun with different rays that are inseparable from one another. I understand that the more in my perceptions of the world I can transition from body identification, seeing the world only through the filters of my material self, to spirit identification, seeing the world as through the filter of my spiritual identification. The former telling me I'm separate from you, the latter telling me I'm one with you, the former telling me that what I perceive with my physical senses is ultimate reality, the latter telling me that what I see with my physical senses is like a veil before a truer truth. And I recognize that I am a choice, which filter I use on my perceptual camera, as it were, and that depending on which filter I use, I will have a very different experience of life. That's a wonderful answer. This show is really mostly about who we are in the big sense. So I generally try to keep it apolitical. It's really hard with you because everybody knows your political affiliation, but the second people start mentioning parties and oh, your team doesn't match my team, it's really easy to get distracted from the message. For this show, for the prep work, I read a book, Return to Love, which my mom swears she found when I was three, which means that she must have had an earlier publication. 1992 is when that book was published. That would make me three. I was wondering if we could have a conversation about you and, and who you are and about your work as a spiritual teacher and maybe how that informs what prompted you to, to get into the political world. But one of the things that first stood out to me in the book was a line where you said, nervous breakdowns can be an underrated method of spiritual transformation. You have no way of knowing this, but I haven't recorded an episode since COVID. The COVID pandemic was kind of a perfect cover for me because I was in the middle of a complete dark night of the soul. What you would call, or what other people might call a mental breakdown and physical breakdown. And it was just through and through. There wasn't an aspect of my life that wasn't impacted by it. It, it started with what I thought was, must be some terminal illness that was undiagnosed. I went to the, the hospital for months and months and months and made them give me tests. And eventually they found something wrong with me. But for a long time, my regular doctors were just like, nothing's wrong. Wrong. This must be just psychiatric. And it's been a long road back. I wanted to, to start by asking, there's this moment in your life where you find A Course in Miracles, and it's easy to kind of make that the, the starting off point. But I was curious about who you were leading up to that. And then what did it mean for you to intersect with this work that really influenced your work as a teacher? I think the 20s are very hard. My experience of that period of life was very much like many other people's. I was reading a lot of spiritual books, psychological books. When I started reading The Course in Miracles, it wasn't the eureka moment of spiritual enlightenment. I don't believe in the eureka theory of spiritual transformation. I don't usually trust that. I think we all mature in various ways, different aspects of ourselves. What I found in The Course in Miracles was perhaps not so much information that I had not read before. 
I read their information given to me in such a way that I could come to understand how to practically apply those principles in a way that I had not been able to do before. I believe there's one truth spoken in many different ways. One truth with a capital T. The Course in Miracles does not claim to have a monopoly on truth. But I'd read a lot of books that had prepared me for the Course in the sense of explaining to me the importance of my thoughts in determining my life experience. I had not understood how I could change my thoughts or what principles should guide that transformation. It's not like when I started the Course in Miracles, I became an enlightened master. I'm not an enlightened master now. You and me both. But I'm a hell of a lot better than I used to. What I became when I started reading The Course in Miracles is someone who knew the principles on which to stand. It's much like when you go take a yoga class and someone teaches you the correct positions. Spirituality, a serious spiritual path, is very much like yoga, but of the mind. This is this position. This is that position. The position of forgiveness. The position of generosity. The position of seeing beyond the evidence of someone's guilt and knowing who they really are. The position of realizing that whoever you're attacking, you're attacking yourself because there's only one of us here. The position of knowing that death is not real because physical birth is just a continuation and so is physical death. The position of knowing that you're on the earth for a reason and that is to forgive yourself and others in order to repair the breach. These are much like yoga positions. And just trying to get the perfect position, even when you don't achieve it, the effort, it trains your muscles. So with spirituality, you are training your attitudinal muscles. Just like with physical exercise, you train your physical muscles. And just like you are honing your body when you do physical exercise, you're honing your persona, your being in the world when you do spiritual practice. And much like with physical exercise, If you do not work on your attitudinal musculature, after a certain age, if you're not working on holding those muscles up, the muscles of positivity, then gravity will bring them down. But emotional gravity and psychological gravity are anger and neediness and critical nature and anxiety and depression and all of those things, which come along with the mind not being situated in the way that deeply honors self or others. Sometimes it's hate of others. Sometimes it's hate of self. It's really wherever the ego mind can take you to make you miserable is the ego's peak experience. Now, the world that we we live in is dominated by a thought system based on fear, that fear manufactured by the false belief that we're separate from one another. You can't be happy feeling you're separate from the rest of the universe because you are the universe. If you are one with the universe and then somebody comes along and says, no, you're just one little dot How can you feel at home within such a lie? So the world, you know, there's a marvelous, in the Course in Miracles, it says, in the Bible, it says that Adam fell asleep and nowhere does it say that he woke up. So we've been in this sleep state, this dream that has turned into a nightmare, believing that we're separate from each other because your body is over there and my body is over here. But even though your body is over there and my body is over here, time and space themselves as Einstein said, are illusions of consciousness. So the training of the mind, and much like physical exercise, you don't get to go to the gym and say, I really like how I look, so I don't have to work out any longer, whether it's yoga or weights or whatever it is. Same with meditation and prayer and the work we have to do 
not only every day, but in every circumstance, in every relationship. Of course, the miracle says every circumstance is a relationship where we have to work to align ourselves, align ourselves with who am I? Why am I here? Which is very different than the thinking that is promoted by this world. Uh, the thinking that is promoted by this world is you're over there, I'm over here. Maybe you have something I want. Maybe I could get it from you. What is in this for me? <laughs> All manner. We are trained to think exploitatively, fearfully, selfishly, narcissistically. Also, you know, in the old Christian tradition, they call it the silver-tongued devil for a reason. Because the ego mind is our own self-hatred posing as self-love. So some of the things that we do that most foster separation and thus self-hatred actually are given to us as though they are good ideas. You see a lot of this in the world today. It's one of the reasons ego loves religions. I mean, some of the most pernicious ideas come wrapped in clothing that is either religious or these days some level of pseudo-psychological perspicacity. Now, I'm really sorry about what you went through. And you referred to your experience as the dark night of the soul. Hundreds of years ago, people looked to the church for solace and comfort and illumination. When sad times come, they called it what you just called it, the dark night of the soul. Then with the advent of modern psychotherapy, the baton was passed to a very secular perspective on mental and emotional pain, the modern psychotherapeutic model, which has been obviously a spectacular failure. And over the last few years, it has been placed again in someone else's hands. The baton shifted once again into the hands of psychopharmacology, which has tremendous implications for our culture. Later today, interestingly enough, I am interviewing as part of a book promotion, there's a PhD psychologist named Lisa Miller, who wrote a book called The Awakened Brain. It's about the connectivity between neuroscience and spirituality. And the book is filled with examples of scientific research being done now about the brain and the MRI done on the brain of people who are spiritual seekers and practitioners and the relation between that and depression and anxiety. So we're going through an extraordinary moment, I think, of realizing so much that we had not realized before. For one thing, Sam, I think that there's a level of psychic pain. I think psychic pain is like physical pain. It's there for a reason. If I have a broken leg, my brain registers physical pain because I, it's a big message. I have to reset that leg. I think so much of the psychic pain going on in our world today is because we are being given a message that we must reset our thinking and we must reset this world. There's a level on which if you're alive today and you're not depressed, what is wrong with you? <laughs> are you not looking? So mental anguish is not always dysfunctional. Only big pharmaceutical companies want you to think it is because that belief forms their $100 billion a year profit center. Mental anguish is often, like physical pain, functional. It's a message. We must listen to it. We must hear it. I think that just like the body has an immune system, so does the psyche. The, the physical body can take a lot of assault and injury and attack and illness and heal from it as long as the immune system is healthy. And the psyche can take a lot of heartbreak and trauma and upset. Human beings can take a lot and heal from it also because there is a psychic immune system. And one of the things that has meant so much to me as a woman is the way there has been cultivated this idea 
that if a woman is depressed, there's something wrong with her. We don't need to be telling more women there's something wrong with you. No, there's something wrong with the world. Yeah. And Krishnamurti is famous, of course, for having said there's is no sign of mental health to be well adjusted to a sick society. When you put all that information together, I wrote a book called Tears to Triumph. Then there's Lisa Miller's book talking about the relationship between spirituality and depression. So what you went through, and I'm sorry that you went through it, but it is so much the locus. It's so much the vortex of what a lot of people are experiencing now. And I think it is leading to the deeper questions out of which will come the deeper answers. I agree with you on so much, especially about that feelings and psychic issues a lot of the times are clues and they're not necessarily something to band-aid over or to cover up, but to to look behind. You know, or a like, sign of your weakness. I've been in recovery for a long time and I talk to a lot of people and they, they tell me about their feelings and I say like, your feelings are really important to you. Not necessarily to me. I'm sorry if something I did offended you, but you should dive into that and, and figure out what's beneath the feeling. That's part of what my recovery was. It, I hung on for dear life like I was hanging on for a cliff and trying to keep it together. And the podcast had just hit a million downloads. And the guest that Misty, who was helping me at the time, had lined up with the biggest we've ever had. And so I was desperately hanging on and eventually I had to let go. And I had to see what was there and drift. And I was bedridden for many months. Did they finally find something physically wrong with you as well? They did. Yeah. My cortisol was incredibly low. So there was like physical markers. I had done performance enhancing drugs, which could have messed up my hormone system. And I've done every drug imaginable when I was a user. I'm not surprised that there was something physically wrong with me. I was seriously, I was like, you guys are missing something. I'm dying. A lot of what helped me return was to refocus. And so there was a time where I basically had a small window of energy I could use. It's like three hours before I just needed to get back in bed. And I just decided, you know what? I'm going to use those three hours on my son when he's around and just be as good of a dad as I can be with this really kind of being very conservative with my energy and what it went to. And so grateful that I'm no longer there. When one of the things that the book I read, which was A Return to Love, really puts at the forefront is like, hey, like the concept of heaven and the concept of hell, whether those are afterlife up for debate, I don't, I'm not really interested to know. That's not up to me in this living lifetime to worry about, but it's here. It's on earth. Like the next moment, my conversation with you and the works that I, the, the way that I focus my kind of comeback in quotes would definitely be to honor people who feel or who are suffering with a chronic illness or chronic pain. Many people would describe as, as hell, the agony and the grief of when you really are in the underworld here and trying to claw your way back out. One of the things that sticks out to me is I don't feel like the guy pre this incident, but as I started to get better, it felt like I don't even know who I am anymore. I feel like a different human. And so to come back to the show and try to put on the old shoes, like I was telling my best friend Reese, the shoes don't fit me anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm not quite sure what shoes I should be wearing for you and your own journey and for you as a teacher, as you're helping stand by the edge and, and pull people back out, what do you do when you find yourself emerging from the ashes in that resurrection? <clears throat> well, there are two completely different conversations there. One is the general notion of spiritual transformation, and one is about coming out of depression. You mentioned the line in my book where I said, nervous breakdowns are highly underrated methods of spiritual transformation. I've had two very, very dark periods of my life that would be called clinical depression. 
So I know what you're talking about. And the first time I went through it, it felt to me that my skull exploded into a gazillion pieces. And slowly but surely, it came back together. And it felt to me that when it came back together, there was a ghost inside that had not been there before. And that's when my career started. So I did come to feel that the discombobulation, the disintegration of my psyche that occurred had had to occur. I'm sure you know the image of the the caterpillar and the butterfly. The caterpillar literally disintegrates into what's called an imaginal soup. Do you love it? It's a sludge. And the cells that are the aspect of the sludge are called imaginal cells. Out of that soup comes the butterfly. You're in that sludge time. The world, the world is in that sludge time. Now, when we're depressed, I I think there is something very unhealthy in our society about the way we've taken a cheap yellow smiley face and poured it over everything. Be happy, be happy. When in fact, we have to honor the times of our pain. In my book, Tears to Triumph, at the beginning, I quote a line from Rilke where he says, let me not squander the hour of my pain. There are seasons of life. And that dark night of the soul, I understand what you're saying, where you feel now, like I don't know who I am, but you will one day. And you will know on some level that this period of pain and darkness that you went through was part of a necessary process. The other is the issue of spiritual transformation in general, even when it doesn't involve depression on that level. The Course in Miracles talks about how, according in the construct of that practice, the Holy Spirit dismantles a thought system based on fear. And then that having been dismantled, you build another thought system based on love. But the Course in Miracles talks about the fact that you will go through a period where you feel what you just said. I'm not that anymore. So who am I? I'm not snarky, cynical, my shticks from the past, uh, my outlook that had become my kind of the way I did it has all fallen apart. Who am I? And that is the time for faith the symbolism of the three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection, the symbolism of the 40 years that the Jews wandered in the desert between slavery in Egypt and deliverance of the promised land. Those are important symbols of the time it takes. My friend Sandy used to call it tomb time. The tomb, you're in the tomb. Tomb time is much like sludge time. And it's particularly difficult right now because the world as we know it is disintegrating. Civilization as we know it is disintegrating. And I think for people like you, Sam, I really feel for people your age. Because when I went through certain things, there were pillars of the world around me that I could still depend on. Whereas your generation does not remember such a time, and it's not such a time now, I still believe we're going to get to the other side of this. Because as it says in The Course of Miracles, God's will has never not been done. People have been in trouble before, and civilizations have been in trouble before. So all that is to say why I believe spirituality is so important right now. Because the spiritual traditions always end in the same place, which is that love prevails. And it will prevail this time. I was talking to a friend of mine today who just went through something very, very terrible. It was something very terrible that I've been through as well. I told her, I said, I can't name why this is true. I said, but it has come to me in the last few months in ways that I can't even articulate that what I went through was valuable. I told her, you will feel that way one day. I think suffering gives you x-ray vision into other people's suffering. You know this is a person from program. No one can counsel a recovering addict like, 
and recovering addict, when you have been to a certain level of pain, people can feel it. They can smell it and they can be comforted by you differently. Just one other thing I'll say about that. You mentioned a few minutes ago, physical pain. I had surgery last year for a rotator cuff. I messed up my shoulder and I've been told that it was a routine surgery but a difficult recovery. But I'm not an addict. I'm not a drug addict. And I knew I was going to have Oxycontin and Dilaudid and Percocet and whatever I needed. So I thought, well, I mean, how bad could it be? Because, you know, I'll be high. And some people said, oh, you know, I thought. As it turned out, first of all, when you're in serious physical pain, narcotics don't make you high because it's absorbed pain. But more than that, as my doctor later told me, the kind of recovery I had, he only sees twice a year. I was in excruciating physical pain. Before I even had the surgery, when I was in a lot of pain, that the doctors told me we can't treat this non-invasively, so you either live with it or we have to have the surgery. I put on Facebook one night on my Facebook page that I was in a lot of pain, and if people would pray for me or do Reiki or whatever, I'd appreciate it. I got 5,000 posts that night. I had no idea so many people in this country live with chronic pain. Yeah. And having been through that recovery, and also, what if I had not had health insurance? What if my insurance had not covered all those pain? Because even with maximum painkillers, I was yelling out in pain. And this went on for two months, that level oh of pain. My gosh. Now, when people tell me now they're going to have surgery or they just had surgery, my heart goes to a place it didn't know to go to before. I would say, oh, I'm sorry, are you okay? I so didn't get it. Now, I've said for a long time, I would say to people in my audiences, I would say, Think of the worst thing you've ever been through, the worst moment of your life, the deepest pain you've ever been through, the greatest heartbreak. Okay. I'd say, okay, you got it? And people nod their head and I would say, it is statistically reasonable to assume that the person to your right has suffered that much too. It is statistically reasonable to assume that the person to your left has suffered that much too. It is statistically reasonable to assume that about the person behind you, the person in front of you. And now look at the room again. <laughs> and, and now I've added to that my knowledge that I didn't have before. How many people live with physical pain? I mean, the stories that I would see on Facebook about people who didn't have the surgery or couldn't. I, anyway, when you have suffered, I think the value of anything spiritually is let my suffering not have been in vain. Let some, something I can be, something I can do, be of greater value to you, dear God, for what I have suffered. And I believe that when that is our prayer, there is so much suffering in the world today. We need more people whose hearts contain compassion for that level of suffering. The fact that the world is in such trouble is because not enough of us have, particularly in the yeah. rich countries. It's exactly something that one of my spiritual teachers told me immediately. He said, oh, it looks like you're going to be a little bit more helpful to people. who <laughs> Just casually drop that for you. Right, that's exactly. That's the bottom Yeah, line. and you know, I was, if your general doctor couldn't figure out what was wrong with you before and he told me about it, I thought you were a whack job. And my heart is opened up in a way where I'm like, you know what? It's it's something that, you know, you wrote in the book, my girlfriend and I, when we were listening, both laughed our asses off, but you want to be right or be happy. And it's like, well, that's from the when somebody tells me, yeah, when somebody tells me something that they're feeling and experiencing, mm -hmm. I am no longer trying to go, oh, well, it's ac actually this, or it's actually that, or you're wrong. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry that you're experiencing that.
for just interpersonal relationships, it's, excuse my language, it's fucking brilliant. Do you want to be right or be happy? Because one of the things that, you know, is tricky about this time is like, we can't even agree on what's true anymore. There's no facts to start arguments because if you listen to conservatives, they have their facts. If you listen to liberals, they have their facts. We can't even agree on what the very baseline of truth is. I'll just take it to the, the individual if you're right about something, but you aren't taking that, carrying it in a way that's palatable to other people, so what? Let's imagine there was somebody 100 years ago, like, hey, this plastic is going to lead to a lot of problems in the 1800s, but you didn't carry that message in a way that persuaded people. So what? You might be dancing in your grave that you were right. You had the right idea. It's not about being right. It's about doing things together as the people, I'll say the most sentient beings on this planet. One of the things that I do love is I start to see that there seems to be more of a, I don't know what the right way to put it, but I think that people are waking up in a way. People are more aware that people are at least more aware of who the political donors are. I imagine that you, you stepped into the political world because you wanted to create change, not just from the sidelines, but, but in it. I'll be honest, part of the reason why I really can't talk politics in depth on this show is because it just drives me nuts. Anyway, that's <laughs> just want to let you know, it's not that I don't want to talk politics. It's that I will lose my cool and lose my mind. But I will talk about change, how people can learn from you as a teacher and some of the ways to bring about change. So I'll talk about a specific I'm part of a men's group, which I love dearly. There's a little bit of an undertone of this kind of classic machismo, especially the, the younger guys, you know, this classic machismo kind of uh, alpha male vibe. It just drives me nuts. It just drives me completely crazy. I just want to be like, guys, our fathers and our grandfathers, they really fucked up. They really failed the planet in a lot of ways. I love men, but I don't associate with men in a way where I'm just like, yeah, men are awesome because I know a lot of really not awesome men <laughs> who I don't want in my camp, even though we're all fun, I know. But if somebody's in a situation like that, where you want to say, you want to be somebody like the message I want to carry to these guys, like, listen, you want to be strong. You want to be capable of kind of being that masculine protector, somebody who's capable of taking on other men. Cause let's be honest, the main danger to our lives right now is <laughs> negative male aggression. So you, you want to be a protector. I love that. But the archetype you want to live in is like that of the, like the patient, benevolent, loving, gentle man who's capable of protecting. How do you transform a space? How can one person in a room, in an environment that they struggle with or wish more for, how do they start to affect that space and start to affect their surroundings in a way that... Well, from a spiritual perspective, Sam, the way you teach is by demonstrating. If you were in an audience of mine and you asked me that question, I would point out to you how judgmental you are towards those men. And Absolutely. that they are there to go through their process. One way not to have persuasive power with them, as Martin Luther King said, you have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. The fact that you're judging them and seeing them as not okay completely takes away from you the ability to be a transformational element in their life. The way to be a transformational element in their life is to be the man that you think the men need to be. There is a divine masculine, just like there's a divine feminine. And it's difficult to be a man. And it's difficult to be a woman. We have a 24-hour job trying to integrate it all within ourselves. And God did not send us, send us here to be vigilant in program talk, taking other people's inventory, because that's basically what you were doing just now. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm so, totally okay so, getting So that's that. the answer to the question. They're there going through all that. And being the man you want to be, and this is a maturity issue no matter what our sex or sexuality, 
we grow up to realize not only in other people, but in ourselves as well. There are a lot of gray areas and growing up is hard. Have compassion for them and use every place where you see a gap between what you think should be and what is. Take that as thank you. I get to look at myself. How am I doing? The work is is always on ourselves. The Course in Miracles says the primary work of the miracle worker is to accept the atonement for himself. It's only the ego that points at other people and sees them as the problem. The Course in Miracles says only what you are not giving can be lacking in any situation. As you know, because you're in that group with them, they're all working out their dad's stuff and doing the best they can. Just like us. Yeah, I love them too. You know, it's not. Yeah, exactly. Right contempt. It's more of an annoyance. Well, but once again, but it's all, but that's where it's all happening, Sam. And that annoyance, the Course in Miracles says, that annoyance is a face of unrecognized rage. By the way, this is easier said than done. I'm not saying I would be any better in that room. What I am as a student of these things is far enough along to go. <laughs> You're so full of shit, Williamson. I'm not advanced to the point of not being in that place, but I'm advanced enough in the point of slapping myself across the face and saying, wow, aren't you misjudgmental, holier than thou person? As a Course in Miracles student, I know where to go and to say, God take this from me. I'm in such a self-righteous, spiritually superior moment right now. Please take this from me. That's really where you and I started when you asked about the course. The course has given me that knowledge. Not in advance. I'm not to the point yet where I'm beyond having those thoughts or feelings, but I think, knock on wood, I'm pretty much beyond the point of not being able to catch myself and saying, wow, are you full of shit today? And that's what a lot of the work is. Thank you so much. I love getting called out on my own shit because that rings so true. <laughs> I'm just, it makes me laugh thinking about how, because uh, this was last night where I'm just going, ah, you knuckleheads, you knuckle dragging Cro Magnon. Anyway. I'm going through it with someone right now myself, just, you know. But the Course in Miracles would say that's why these people are in our lives. That this is to, to show you, not quite Jesus Christ on that one yet, are you? Oh, no. <laughs> there's the gap right here. And he says in The Course in Miracles, my mind joined with your mind can shine away the ego. Or as The Course in Miracles says, in those moments, all God's asking you to do is don't suppress what's happening in this moment. Admit your annoyance. Admit your whatever and say, dear God, take this from me. Holy Spirit, whatever the words we use, come into my brain, into my heart. And these wires that got crossed here, please make me better than I was before. Let's remember the story of the prodigal son. The father's more excited to see the son who left and came back than the son who never left. And the bone is stronger in that place where it had been broken than it was before, which just takes us back to what we talked about at the beginning. We all wander into the lands of pain and suffering and judgment and blame. And we all return and come home to love when in any given moment we remember that we can. How do you help be somebody who, A, does this in their own life, in their own worldview, but also is in, in, in some way infectious and contagious to other people. It's, you shouldn't say that during COVID. That's a bad analogy. But to go from thinking of yourself as just an individual, independent individual to somebody who is part of a, a connected thing, like nobody is independent. You have to decide where you're dependent. Like, I don't want to be dependent of drugs, but I'm happy to be dependent on the people who purify my water and who make sure that I have electricity, the people who show up for work and, and bring my house electricity or bring my house fresh water, or like, I will always be dependent of those people or dependent of something. We're not in a vacuum. We're not in a void. We're on a big rock in space together. 
we're not just together. On a spiritual plane, we are one. The Course in Miracles says when you're having a judgmental thought about someone and you attack them, even in your thinking, you blame, you attack. The Course in Miracles says, imagine that a sword is dropping over their head. But be very clear, it's not dropping on theirs, it's dropping on yours. So the line, you wish to be right or to be happy. If I base my sense of reality on what my physical senses perceive, you might have said something mean or looked at me mean or something on the physical plane that was unkind or unloving. And so because of that, I am judging you. And I can probably get a lot of people to agree with me. Sam shouldn't have said that. I don't like the way Sam looked at you. Uh, He shouldn't have moved it like that, whatever. And I'm on this guilt fest because that's how the ego mind keeps us in hell, i.e. anxiety, by fostering the belief that we're separate even though we're actually not. So I can find a lot of people, particularly today's world, it's a real jacuzzi moment. Oh, he shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have done that. It was very narcissistic of him. That was very sociopathic of him. That was very blah, 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 blah. And I can just go to town on this perception of your guilt. The Course in Miracles says, I might be right. Maybe you did see all those things. Maybe you did say all those things or do all those things. But forgiveness is where I'm willing to extend my perception beyond what my physical senses perceive to what my heart knows to be true, which is that you're an innocent child of God. And your personality might have gone into a loveless place, but the truth of who you are is love itself. So I can either, once again, which filter am I going to use? If I'm going to use the perceptual filter of what my eyes saw you do, what my ears heard from you, then I could be right, but I can't be happy because I'm not aware of our oneness, which is heaven. So hell is the anxiety of the judgments, and heaven is my awareness of your oneness, which is your innocence. But the second thing you talked about was being right about something happening in the world. There's a difference between right and righteous. Righteous means right use of the mind. I think it's very important right now to stand for what we feel is right. To me, that's very a very different use of the word than you prefer to be right or to be happy. We're living at a time where there is such monstrous exploitation of billions of people on the planet so that a very few can have a lot of money. That's not right. I agree with you. So I think on that, there, there are times you say, well, it's, it's not right to be correct, in, uh, to be silent right now. I think that we have lost the ethical sense of character and decency that comes from knowing that certain things, it's not right to keep your mouth shut about that. And other things where it's the right thing to say. You know, I had an interesting experience the other day in my apartment building. I walked in and I saw on the floor as I walked in, I saw blood. And I looked and I, I'm seeing this trail of blood. And now in front of me, I see these guys carrying a big mattress and I see someone who I assume is a tenant leading them. And I'm like, what happened here? And I'm seeing and I'm registering, no, this is blood. And I follow it over and somebody who works at the building, their face was gushing. I mean, blood was gushing. And I looked to these guys, I said, what's happening? And they said, oh yeah, it's Steve. I said, what do you mean it's, oh, oh it's Steve. And I said, oh, and I, I go into full blown, oh my God, what happened? And in fact, he'd broken his nose. He, he walked into a glass door. But this is what was interesting to me, Sam. There was a tenant who originally, I think, was the one who said, yeah, it's Steve, who saw me react and like, oh, we've got to get towels and we've got to get bandages and should we call 9-11? And I watched something happen. I reminded him of his humanity. He was ignoring what was happening here. There was a human being whose face was gushing 
blood. I saw him like, oh, yeah, she's right. Yeah, she's right. Uh, yeah, we, we got to get bandages and stuff. And I saw in that moment how, you know, sometimes you see stories on the news about people who get horrible things happen to them and neighbors saw or neighbors just walked over. That's just not right. But it was interesting to me how this man changed. I saw it on his face. I was like, oh, she's right. What am I thinking? You know, and the, the person working the building was embarrassed because I was a tenant and I was wiping up on the floor. I said, don't be silly. This is not a moment for social niceties. I mean, all that's out the window when somebody's hurt. It was a profound moment for me. Now, back to what you were saying about we can't even agree on what's right. A lot of that is created by the media. Oh, without a doubt. And yeah. I, I believe, and I, and I feel this having been a political candidate, and I feel this having two pretty close girlfriends who are Trump supporters. One of them, we deal with it by not talking about it at all. Sure. The other one, we've worked on our relationship. We've really worked on nonviolence. We've worked on communicating in ways that aren't violent, emotionally, psychologically violent to one another, put downs and all that. Did you watch Bill Maher last week? I didn't, but I've, I've seen a lot of a okay. lot of him over the so years. So he had Ben Shapiro and Malcolm Nance. And Ben Shapiro was going full on right wing and Malcolm Nance was going on full on left wing. And there was a moment in New Rules where they both thought, they both laughed and they looked at each other. And I noticed that. And then the second time it happened, Bill Maher even noticed, he said, look, they're both laughing. And it reminded me of the Einstein line that we will not solve the problems of the world from the level we were at when we created them. And the Course in Miracles would say that one moment when they left the mind that would go, you're wrong, you're right, you're wrong, I'm right, and laughed together, that there was something very profound and the audience saw it. They had a share, a moment of shared humanity. And that's what I believe we're all reaching for now, that place beyond, what is the line from Rumi, out beyond all ideas of good and bad and right and wrong, there is a field, I'll meet you there. I think mm. we all long to be on that field where we're just human, where it doesn't matter who works in the building, they're, they're believing. It doesn't matter, we're, you know, that we're, we're both laughing, that we love each other. There's an old Carly Simon song, something about a couple that's fighting, and one of them woke up in the middle of the night and said, she said the line is something like, we forgot and said, I love you. Like in that moment, they forgot they were fighting, and they just reached out for each other and said, I love you. That's what I believe is the challenge of this moment. It's our only possibility of survival is that level of spiritual evolution. Wow. You've been incredibly generous with your time and I know you only had an hour, so I want to honor that. And, you know, as a, another temporal being with only a limited amount of time in this, this meat suit, I really appreciate you giving me some of your time. Well, first of all, all of us who read operating instructions feel like we know you, Sam. I've known you since you were a baby. <laughs> and also your mother means so much as one of the really great American wise women. It's impossible to know her and love her as so many of us do without just having such a deep affection for you. I can see that you carry forward her depth, her soulfulness. And as with her, it's an honor to have a chance to talk to you. So thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was an honor. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast or watching if you're on Patreon. If you'd like to support us, you can go to www.patreon.com slash howtohuman and contribute whatever you feel is appropriate a month to help us keep going. You can find us on social media at hellohumans.co for almost everything. Until next time, I hope you have a great day.